Shabbat Shalom, everyone. You may be seated. The most exciting part to me of Judaism is when laws clash, when two competing ideas face each other, and we have to figure out what to do. For some reason or another, I always find that part of the most exciting, invigorating, renewing part of what it is to be someone who is committed to Jewish law but committed to modernity. And the Talmud and the Torah itself are loaded with examples of where Jewish law clashes. And it asks the question, what do we do? There are a handful of examples I'll share with you this morning so that you get the idea of what I'm after. We have an obligation when someone dies that we shouldn't leave the body by itself. And someone who sits with the body of a dead, dead body is called a shomer. And that's a mitzvah, that's a responsibility in Judaism. The shomer sits with the body. We also know that people are supposed to pray three times a day. But we also have a law that prohibits us from praying in front of the dead. It's called loeg larash, it means that you're praying and the dead person can't pray and it's obnoxious, it's, it's, it's unseemly. So you're supposed to leave the presence of the dead to pray. So here's the question. If you're watching a body and it's time to pray, you can't do both. So what do you do? When that situation arises in Judaism, I always feel some sense of excitement. How do you pick which is right, which is wrong, which path do we go down? Now luckily there are lots of other examples. I'm gonna share a few others with you just to give you a flavor of what it is that challenges me and excites me in Judaism. There's the story of a person, and it's very common in the time of the Talmud, who got married by proxy. It means he married his wife even though he wasn't actually there. And he's going home to consummate the marriage with his wife. And that is considered to be a mitzvah. Hasn't happened yet. And he's on his way home and someone stops him and says, hey, you could be the 10th person for a minion. Can you come in? Because we gotta say minion and Kaddish. And that person by Jewish law is permitted to say no. I'm going home to complete my responsibility with my wife and my marriage. Meaning, here he is engaged in one mitzvah and pulled by another mitzvah. Which mitzvah should he fulfill? What about a doctor on Yom Kippur? A doctor who has to do work like a surgeon who is a specialist in his or her field. And it's Yom Kippur, and by doing the work, they can't be in shul, and they can't even fast, let's say, because they have to have the fuel to do their work properly. What do we do? Well, what do we do when someone decides to fast on Yom Kippur? But in fasting on Yom Kippur, we know that they could become ill, that there's a greater increase for that person in their condition to do so. What do we do? Or one of my favorite examples that's given in the Mishnah is the cantor that is walking to shul on Yom Kippur morning. And the cantor on Yom Kippur has the singular responsibility of absolving everyone in the room of their right to pray, meaning through the cantor's prayers, we hear our prayers, unlike any other time. It falls specifically on the cantor's shoulders. And on his way to shul, he sees a building that was standing and now it has collapsed. And he doesn't know if there are people inside or not. He doesn't know if they're inside, if they're alive or not. He has no clue. The, the Talmud asks the question, as does the Mishnah, can he go in there 
and start to look for people. In doing so, realizing that A, he jeopardizes his life, but even more so, he's gonna miss shul. And in missing shul, there's 3,000 people waiting to hear his prayer on Yom Kippur, and they can't do the prayer, only he can. What do you do? These are the questions and the cases that give me some sense of excitement as a rabbi, as someone who is engaged and enthralled by the notion of codes and where codes work. But I'm gonna tell you something. When you unpack these cases, in almost every time, the majority of the authorities say that there is a common denominator. And the common denominator always comes down to humanity. What does that mean? That means that there are laws that are ben adam the makom and ben adam the chavero. There are laws between us and God and us and other people. So for example, me saying the Shema twice a day is a law between me and God. But me helping someone across the street is a commandment a mitzvah between me and other people, right? When you put that paradigm or that little rubric into effect in all of these cases, what you realize is that every time the case of the person, the soul, the ill, making them better always wins. So if the cantor is walking to shul and there's the thought that maybe, perhaps, there could be a person in that room, and maybe perhaps in the cantor going in, he or she could save the life of the person that's in there, not even knowing if they're in there, then it doesn't matter about the 3,000 people waiting to daven kol nidre or waiting to daven ni'ilah, it doesn't matter. That one life supersedes. And it tells us that a doctor who's a cardiothoracic surgeon who has to save a life, or a pediatrician who has to take care of a kid with a fever, whatever it is, that doctor has to take care of the person who is sick first. And it tells us the person who's fasting but has a medical condition should eat, and should eat a lot, to the point that they don't even jeopardize their illness. And it tells us that the person who is going to fulfill his responsibility to marriage, as opposed to the going to make the minyan, should go to his spouse, because it doesn't take into consideration her feelings, and the other people have a chance of finding another soul to help them with the minyan, or to pray on their own. So the spouse has to be considered. And in the first case I shared with you about the shomer, in almost every case, the rabbis say that the shomer that misses davening to watch the body, is exempt from any wrongdoing because ha'otzeik ba'mitzvah, patur mina mitzvah. That tells us someone who's engaged in one mitzvah is exempt in another mitzvah. My teacher and inspirational figure in life, Rabbi Doniel Hartman, just penned a book, and it's called Putting God Second. And the whole concept behind the book is exactly what I'm sharing with you now. That when you're faced with this challenge of what to do in these situations, the common denominator that will always win each and every time is choosing human life. When you choose the humanity before God, that matters. And we know, we know personally what happens when we flip it around. Let me give you some examples of places and people in particular who get what Hartman calls, and I love this phrase, God intoxicated. That means they get so drunk with the notion of trying to fulfill God's will that they are literally stupefied when it comes to engaging with another human being. I'll give you one of the most common examples. 
perhaps, and more particularly this applies to women than men, you've been in a situation where you've come across an orthodox man and you extend your hand to shake as a common gesture of courtesy. And the man who won't touch women because the beliefs that they have of women at times being impure through their menstrual cycle will not extend his hand and shake the woman's hand. Now, I know there are women in this room who have been subject to such a moment. And without fail, every person I ask feels horrible when that happens. They wish they had known. They don't want to put their hand out and get rejected. It's an awkward feeling. It's something that makes us feel different. And we don't like to feel opposite. But most thoughtful rabbis today in the Orthodox world have written responses that tells us unequivocally that when you're faced with a situation like that, even though there's a prohibition for men to touch other women that aren't their spouse, they should still shake hands. Why? Because the feelings of the other matter. And the rabbis in the Orthodox world in the circles in which I act, they don't go around sticking their hands out. But if my wife extends her hand or my friend extends their hand, they shake it because their feelings trump. And that is another case of knowing the inverse of choosing God first and how it can make another person feel. In the Talmud, we know the entire destruction of the temple came because the rabbis were so particular about what kind of sacrifice could be made, even with a blemished animal, that if they sacrificed the blemished animal, everyone would think it's okay to sacrifice blemished animals, and they didn't. And as a result of that, the entire temple became destroyed. And Hartman says in his book, so what if they would have sacrificed the blemished animal? So what? Big deal. God gets it. God understands. But the humans are not nearly as understanding or as compassionate. And I think that's true. We saw it this week at the Kotel even, when Haredi Jews interrupted a prayer service between Reform and conservative Jews outside the walls of the Kotel and threw eggs and water and chairs and bags of milk and yelled all types of terrible things at the Reform and conservative Jews praying there. I've had experiences where my son was trampled, pushed down and trampled by an ultra-Orthodox person going to the Kotel. And for some reason or another, this triggered me. Unlike most things that I could let pass, it triggered me and I grabbed a hold of that man and I screamed at him. And I said to him, you're gonna go pray to a God while you trample a little boy in the process. What religion are you a part of? These are the challenges of ben adam l'makom, ben adam between us and God and us and another human. And I fully subscribe to Hartman's way of thinking, which is whenever we're faced with that challenge together, the human always trumps. So why am I bringing this up with you? I'm bringing this up with you as a proof text for something that I feel unapologetic about and compelled by to share with you as an example that I believe has happened in this country. It's happened far too many times, but it happened in a way Saturday night that has brought our world and our understanding of this issue to hopefully a grinding halt because it can't continue to go on. And the issue in which I refer to is the prevention of gun violence in America. 
49 innocent souls, enjoying time with one another, music, laughter, drinking, as entitled to them by light and by liberty and by law, and a club in Orlando had their lives senselessly ripped out from beneath them by someone who came in with an assault rifle with the intent only of killing and maiming all in his sight. Now, we can have a debate that would last a lot longer than the Shabbat. We'd be here for many more Shabbatot about whether this was caused by Islamic fundamentalists and jihadis or this is an issue of gun prevention, and I would argue it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yes, I believe, David Kirshner believes we have a real problem with radical jihadis who want to wage war against those civilized countries. We are a target of that, America, because we are a Western democratic civilized country. Germany is a target for that. France is a target for that. Scandinavia is a target for that. Canada is a target for that. Israel is a target for that because of a shared value system. And I get that. But what happened in Aurora, Colorado, what happened in Columbine, what happened in Charleston, South Carolina, and the list goes on and on, was the same kind of gun violence that had absolutely nothing to do with radicalized jihadis. It had something to do with people who were mentally unstable and had access to guns. The devastation that is unthinkable, it, it actually boils my blood to even speak about what happened in Newtown, was not about someone from a foreign country who was logging online to claim their affiliation with ISIS. It was about a troubled boy who had access to guns who shouldn't have. And it's our responsibility to say, we have a conflict here, people. We have a conflict because we have two competing laws, one against the other. You see, our Declaration of Independence tells us that we have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That is our, our unalienable right as Americans. We're allowed life. We're allowed liberty. We're allowed to pursue happiness wherever we want to pursue that happiness and however we want to, as long as it's within the bounds of the law. And if people decide to pursue that life in a classroom learning with first graders, or people decide to pursue that life and that happiness in a club in Orlando, that is their right as citizens of this country. But it comes into conflict with another right called the Second Amendment, which is the right to bear arms. And they are competing with each other. Someone has the right to buy an assault rifle at a Walmart. But someone also has the right to go to a movie theater in Aurora, Colorado. Which right trumps? Excuse the expression. <laughs> Which right trumps? Which one wins? The one between us and our constitutional affiliation to bear arms, or the one between us and our ability to preserve life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? And frankly, seeing all the varied demographics of those that have been targeted by gun violence in the past years, I have come to the unquestionable answer and result that we side with the humanity like we do in Judaism that tells us that those lives matter. Now, I don't own a gun and I never plan to own a gun. I don't like guns. Guns have one purpose only, 
But I want to be very clear about two things. One, I have no intention of running for political office, and what I'm about to say is not a political speech. And two, I'm not looking to take away anyone's gun or their rights to have guns if they have them and want to exercise them. I'm just looking for us to govern it because I know what I had to do when I got a driver's license, and I know what I have to do when I get a passport, and I know that I could walk into the Kmart when it was still here in Closter, and I could walk out with guns, and that's wrong. 273 people tried to buy guns. Of the 273 people, all of them were on the terror watch list. 245 of them were able to purchase guns. Does that sound right? They can't fly on an airplane, but they can buy a gun without a waiting period. The AR assault rifles that were used in Aurora, Colorado, and Newtown, and that were used at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, have one purpose. They're not even done for hunting, those guns. Their purpose is to be used in warfare. What business they have being sold at Walmart and Target, I do not know. And if the amendment might allow us to that right, what allows us that right to have the freedoms where and when we want to celebrate life, to dance with our friends, to be engaged in relationship, to go to the movies? Where does it end? Now you might say to yourself, so what do we do? How do we fix this? One argument I say is we compartmentalize. Yes, in my estimation, a critical ingredient to this terror act in Orlando was the issue of radicalization in a jihadi form, much like in San Bernardino. But if you throw Virginia Tech, Columbine, Aurora, Newtown, and a host of others into there, you will find that what the commonality is between all of these incidents is not jihadism. The two commonalities happen to be accessibility to guns, high-powered guns, automatic rifles in particular, and mental instability. And that means we must, and I underline the word must, do our job to ensure that the legislators do their job. And that is not be bought by rifle associations or special lobbies, but listen to their heart and follow the Declaration of Independence as much as they would follow the Second Amendment. Because we have a right to life, to liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We have a right to pray here in this synagogue. And it's a sad state of reality that we have three people with weaponry outside of our synagogue at all times practically now, besides the cost it incurs to us, to ensure that right. And it's not only because of a threat from jihadis, it's a threat of the accessibility of guns and those with mental instability combined. So we need waiting periods. We need serious background checks. We need to do the research that's necessary and realize that life, liberty, and happiness trumps. It trumps the Second Amendment. Doesn't mean it doesn't exist, the Second Amendment. Doesn't mean you can't bear arms. It just might mean that the process of its accessibility will be a little bit more challenging. I bring this up from this pulpit for two reasons. One, because like all of you, I would be performing a 
a source of rabbinic malpractice by not discussing the tragedy in Orlando this past week. But secondly, and equally as important, is that I believe this is a Jewish issue, and I'll tell you why. It's Jewish because we learned what do we do when we're faced with two competing laws. We learned our responsibility of the challenge of the dead body and the shomer and davening, or the house that collapsed and the canter. And what we learn in that example is that the life one always trumps. It doesn't mean that the cantor doesn't have a role to lead us. It doesn't mean that we don't have a role to pray or we don't have a role to look after the body. It means when we're faced with both, one has superiority over the other at that moment. And that's my argument here, is that in the Jewish lens of looking at this, our life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness trumps and our responsibility is to govern the way that guns are accessible before we just make them accessible. That's number one. Number two, Judaism always chooses life. Uvacharta chayim, we are told, that we always look to save life, enhance life, promote life, as proven to you in every example I just shared. Every example of not fasting and the physician and someone who might be alive in a building, we always choose life. And I believe one of the reasons why this land has been so fertile for the Jewish people, because that's been a quintessential American value also. And that's why we've thrived here. And the third reason I'll tell you why I think this is a Jewish issue is because the Torah demands of us, it doesn't, it doesn't just tell us, it demands of us that we are not allowed to sit idle when tragedy has occurred. It tells us we are not allowed to stand on the blood of our neighbor. And if we do nothing about gun control, then that's exactly what we did. And I would argue as a rabbi, we are breaking the Torah. We are transgressing the Torah when there has been blood spilled repeatedly by this act. And we as a people do nothing. We're standing idly by on the blood of our neighbors. So I'm asking all of you to do more than just listen to me today. I'm asking you to be Jewish. And be Jewish means more than what you feel in your heart. It's about taking what you feel in your heart and doing something with your hands. That's what Abraham Joshua Heschel taught us by being Jewish. You can't just advocate for something in your heart. You gotta advocate with your feet. You gotta dive in with your hands, he would say. And that's what we have to do. So I have a few short, simple action items for you. One is that one of the champions of Mothers Against Gun Violence is here today on Shabbat. She's a member of our synagogue, and she has been one of the smartest, most articulate, passionate voices on this issue. And I encourage you after shul to talk with my friend Sarah Nanis, who is over there, who will tell you anything you can do to be part of the troops that finally put an end to this issue. One of my colleagues who lives in Mawa, who's moving to New York City, his name is Rabbi Joel Mosbacher. And Rabbi Mosbacher had his father gunned down by an illegal, illegal firearm. And he has been one of the staunchest opponents to accessibility of guns, where he wants to allow fingerprinting on each trigger so that only the person registered to the gun can shoot it. And likes, not denying guns, just ensuring safety. I encourage you after Shabbat to reach out to Rabbi Mosbacher through Facebook or email and tell him what can we do to help. 
I will tell you that this Shabbat, this weekend, is really critical because there's going to be a vote in Senate. And I left some sheets out on the center table of what you can do if you don't remember this. I have it all written out for you so you can take it with you. But you should text the words disarm hate to 644-33. And then you're going to receive an automated text message of what you can do to help in this process and be recruited to make sure that we have sensible gun laws in the United States of America. And lastly, but perhaps most importantly, is call your congresspeople. Call Congressman Garrett, call Congressman Piscrell, depending on where you live. Call Senator Booker and Menendez, but you should know, again, like on Israel issues, these guys are on the right page, in my estimation, on this issue. But let them know where you stand and how appreciative you are of their support and of Senator Booker standing for hours filibustering in the Senate floor so that we can finally bring some sense to this issue. And if you pass the word on and forward the text and share it on Facebook, then maybe exponentially, we can do what Heschel did and pray with our feet. The Torah tells us prayers are important, but humanity matters. And if we want to care about the humanity of the lives that are lost and equally the humanity of every soul in here and their children and grandchildren and friends and family and neighbors, then we can't stand on the blood of our fellow citizen. We have to act. We have two laws that conflict with each other, just like the Torah and tradition and Talmud have told us from time immemorial. But they also gave us a recipe of how you fix it. Vacharta chayim, choose life. So choose a way that we can make sensible laws, thoughtful regulations, so that we no longer have to dedicate services and rallies to the memories of those who sought life but had it ripped away from a gun. May the memory of all those who lost their life this past week at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando and of all of those people in the world who have been victims of gun violence be a blessing because may it be inspirational enough for us to make the change that needs to happen.